Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Hello, Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Normally, you'd be hearing Sean Spears' voice on these The Hub Dialogues, but I'm stepping in today, a late afternoon on Sunday, the 8th of October, for a special Hub Dialogue on the unfolding crisis in Israel. I'm exceedingly fortunate to welcome to The Hub community Janice Gross-Stein, the founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs, an internationally renowned scholar and author and an expert on the Middle East that I go to consistently to try to understand what's happening on the ground. Uh, First, Janice, I just want to express, I think on behalf of everyone, just the utter moral outrage at what we are seeing uh, in Southern Israel over the last 48 hours. This is uh, brutality and violence norms, anything that one could imagine Let's start there. I'm sure you share this shock of this moment. Why are we seeing this kind of violence so up close, so personal, so horrific? It just seems off the scales. I share your shock, Roger, to be quite frank. You know, I am a seasoned observer of the Middle East, and I have seen a lot. I've been in the Middle East when there were wars. There is something that is so brutal in the videos that we've been watching because the targets were overwhelmingly civilian. There was one military base that was targeted uh, because that's all there was in the region, but so the targets were civilian. So the largest mass casualty in Israel's history has now taken place close to 300 kids at a party in the desert, which is traditional at the end of the holidays. And all of those people who died or were kidnapped uh, were kidnapped in close personal contact. Um, uh, A Hamas fighter had to shoot them um, after he saw them. And I think it's that, the chilling effect a uh, personal, uh, intimate way, really, of inflicting death, which is so horrific. Um, that certainly has stayed with me. What is remarkable about this, Rudyard, is um, this was an operation. 1,000 Hamas fighters came on land through a barrier an electronic barrier that cost a billion dollars by sea 
uh, and by air paragliding um, in a coordinated attack, which not only did Israeli military intelligence fail to pick it up, but U.S. signals intelligence did not pick it up, which really tells you that, uh, so the surprise was strategic and tactical. How did they do it is what everyone is asking. They clearly went dark, which means they used no electronic form of communication, nor did they gather in unusual groups because, you know, over satellite cameras pick up such meetings of sophistication and planning and coordination. Somebody had to help with couriers for sure. Um, but nevertheless, um, it is a, frankly a stunning achievement from a strategic perspective, even though horrific in the way that it was executed. Mm -hmm. the kidnappings, uh, murder of women, children, and the elderly. I just have to think, Janice, that Hamas has made a big mistake here. Um, they may be caught up now in the euphoria of this heinous attack, but surely not only will the leadership of Hamas be disassembled now over the coming weeks and months, but I would just think that any credibility, what little credibility one could find uh, around the plight of Gaza and the people in Gaza is now gone, that there is few, if any, states or nations that other than the Republic of Iran that came out this weekend, its president saying that the Republic was happy at what Hamas did, an appalling statement. Can we be hopeful just in this Thanksgiving weekend? Can we be hopeful here that some something can and will change that Hamas has become the equivalent of Islamic State. Maybe they always were, but this heinous terrorist attack to me just validates uh, any and all attempts to remove them from the proverbial board. So let me let me offer the most optimistic scenario that I can. All right, Richard, in the midst of this horror, because a shock like this unsettles the pieces always, and they reassemble in ways that nobody anticipated. So let's start with your, I think, valid comment that there are very few, if any, governments other than the government of Iran that will support Hamas. Um, the Egyptian government, the Jordanian government, even the Syrian government, they are all threatened by this kind of activity, frankly. Uh, and they will move back um, from Hamas uh, as a result of this kind of activity. But the shock, I think, is important inside Israel as well, because this government wears the failure the strategic failure, the operational failure. One historical precedent, and it's not 1973. And if you want to go down that line, you'll come back and ask me a question, but it's not a good analogy for a whole variety of reasons. 
All that it has in common was that there was a strategic surprise. But what happened to the government of Israel? After that, there was a commission of inquiry and the government fell. Golda Meir, Moshe Dayan lost their jobs as a result of the failure. I have no doubt, Rudyard, that there will be an equivalent commission of inquiry after this and that this government does not survive if it lasts even that long. Um, so the most right-wing extremist government that Israel has had is just as much a casualty of this attack uh, as Hamas is. Now, if you want to be optimistic, you can say that the extreme actors on both sides here are the big losers um, in what we're seeing, along with all the civilians who have lost their lives in Israel and the civilians who will inevitably lose their life as the Israeli public, which is just outraged, outraged, pushes the government to engage in some sort of significant escalation, as you just said in your question. Help us, Janice, try to understand what is the right historical analogy to think about this event and understand its magnitude. Um, some people, you know, you're right, have gone back to the Yom Kippur War. Others have invoked 9-11. And on a, it's, it should be noted that on a, on a population basis, if this attack had happened in the United States, over 20,000 Americans would be dead. So how how are we to understand it? Are there any historical analogs here that would give a, a layperson like myself an ability to register this on the Richter scale? So October 1973 is not the right analogy because that uh, was a surprise attack led by the government of Egypt, which has the largest standing army in the Arab world and the government of Syria, and potentially the very survival of Israel as a state was at stake in that war. Um, and that's just not true in this case, no matter what else um, can be said. Israel's survival is not at stake um, right now. The other side, though, is that war was fought from the Mitla Pass to the Sinai Canal and largely along the Long Heights, good fit with this one. 9-11, I think, is an, it's a really poor analogy, not only because the civilian casualties in Israel are orders of magnitude greater than American casualties were, but because this is both a religious and a national conflict. Um, between Israel and Palestinians, which has been going on for 120 years. What's the best analogy, Rudyard, in some ways? it's We have to go much further back to the war of 1948-49, uh, to the War of Independence, when Israel was attacked across all its borders and the Egyptian army, um, marched up the path that Hamas has just marched up and reached the outskirts of Tel Aviv. And that war was inflicted a vast number of casualties and, frankly, the future um, of the Jewish settlement in Palestine hung in the balance at that time. 
And and that's, I think, the closest one. But again, um, this one is less severe. But what makes it so horrific and so frightening is that it, it has taken place inside the green line. And I think that's important to emphasize. This is not about withdrawal from occupied territories. It is taking place inside the green line. So just for the layperson again, the green line, what is that? So the green line um, are the armistice borders of Israel that were agreed to in 1949. Um, so that border between Israel and the Gaza Strip uh, is an officially sanctioned border by the United Nations. For the first 27 years after 1949, Gaza was um, occupied by Egyptian forces. Then it was occupied by Israeli forces in the wake of the 1967 war. But there was a withdrawal in 2005 uh, and Hamas came to power in Gaza in 2007. Now, Israel still blockades in the sea, still blockades in the air, but that border is an internationally recognized border. And Hamas crossed that border and attacked inside the borders of Israel that were established as a result of the ceasefire in 1949. So it's not, a, it's not about withdrawal right? Whatever it's about. Yeah, a key point, and I think it helps me understand, again, the seriousness uh, of this moment. Just what think happened next? Later, um, someone who we've had on the Hub podcast was saying today that, you know, Israel should look at the U.S. experience post 9-11, and that the American reaction to the horrific terrorist attacks in New York on September 11 with the judgment of history and the ability of 2020 hindsight turned out to be, let's say charitably, a suboptimal policy for the US, the oversized reaction and the series of wars in Afghanistan and Iraq cost America blood, treasure and international prestige. If you were advising the government of Israel today with the knowledge that we have of the 9-11 response by the U.S., how would you suggest that they act? Uh, because they have to act. This is a clearly, as we've just talked about, an event of significant magnitude for Israel, for the region, for international norms. What do they do? Roger, let me say right away that I agree with Ian. Right. I agree with the spirit of what Ian is arguing. Now, how does this translate into the dilemma that Israel uh, faces now? And what I'm going to say is not what I expect them to do, all right? Because <laughs> they're not listening to Ian or to me or, frankly, to people who think like we do. First thing is that a government, that Netanyahu, who owns this and wears this and is responsible for this failure. Um, the first thing that should happen is there should be a government of national unity with Lapid and Benny Gantz, the two other leaders of the opposition, and he should jettison from his government the right-wing extremist leaders who now have responsibility for security. 
particularly Ben-Gvir and Smotra, they need to be removed. And to his credit, Lapid is insisting on that, not Benny Gans, but Lapid is insisting on that as a preconditioning for joining the government. Why do I say this matters? Because this is the time to remove the internal political considerations which have so polarized the country for the last nine months and bring the country together in a unified response. That's number one. Now, that wasn't a problem for the United States, but it's a huge problem right now in Israel. Secondly, the reason um, Hamas took these hostages, and here's the dilemma, is because there are some 5,000 Palestinians who are prisoners inside Israel, and they want 30 hostages, which is what they have said today that they hold, there may be more for those 5,000. Now, there's recent history here, Rudyard, which is important to put on the table. Israel exchanged a 1,000 prisoners for one Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit, not long ago. And that was done with Hamas as well. Public opinion in Israel is overwhelmingly against that kind of exchange again, because you can see the moral hazard it creates. It encourages the taking of hostages, right? It's not an accident that so many were kidnapped and taken back across the border into Gaza. It is to enable that kind of negotiation. But there is room for some third-party negotiation in the very immediate future now um, if Israel can wait and not engage in precipitous action. Third, do not go in with a ground force. It is easy to get in, Rudyard. It is impossible to get out. If you think um, operationally at what decapitating Hamas would mean, it would mean large numbers of Israeli ground forces going in, hunting for individual Hamas leaders who are hiding amidst civilians in tunnels along with hostages. It is an uncertain prospect it will cause large numbers of civilian casualties. And more to the point, what happens the day after? What happens the day after? You can't just walk out and leave. And you may not fully succeed in the mission anyway. So as emotionally tempting as this and as understandable as is the rage of the Israeli public, I would agree with Ian, do not do it. What do we see, by the way, all day today? Tanks on flatbeds rolling toward the border with Gaza. So I am not optimistic that they will hold back because of the political pressure, but it, I think it is the wrong thing to do. What do you do, frankly? You build on the political capital that's been created here in Egypt, in Saudi Arabia, and you move forward with the initiative that the United States has been leading with a reconstituted government that is an entirely, uh, the, the success for that kind of initiative would be entirely possible. And you capitalize, in fact, on the opportunity and you use their good offices, the Saudi offices, the Qatari offices, to try to free the hostages long before you resort to a ground action. What I said is entirely rational, Roger, and it's not going to happen. 
Sign up for the Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. How concerned are you about the risks of regional escalation? I mean, as I mentioned before, the Islamic State of Iran has come out and said that they are happy with this so-called operation. I don't know, Janice, one might think that planning, technology, other forms of assistance have long been provided to Hezbollah and uh, we know Hamas's uh, connections with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, its Quds forces. Is that the concern here, Janice, that there is going to be some kind of trail that links the surprise success, both tactical and strategic, of this attack back to Iran? There are unlimited possibilities for escalation here, Roger, and you just mentioned uh, a very serious one. Below that level, uh, if there are large numbers of casualties in Gaza that flow from an Israeli um, ground attack, Hezbollah is holding its fire. There was a token firing three or four rockets yesterday from Lebanon, but it was token. It was clear that it was token, uh, and they've done nothing else. The West Bank remains quiet. Those are the obvious places where this can escalate. Let's go up the ladder. Should there be any persuasive and strong evidence that Iran enabled this, this Prime Minister Netanyahu has long worried more about Iran and its nuclear program than any other issue. The United States today moved an aircraft carrier, uh, is pre-positioning ammunition, and has deployed a squadron to that aircraft carrier. That is being done to deter any of the major powers in the region, but principally Iran, from becoming involved. But the reverse is equally worrying, that there is some evidence that comes to light, especially as they now sift through everything, not only in Tel Aviv, but also in Washington, and find the missing links that they missed. Go one step further removed. Iran, in the last year or so since the war in Ukraine, has developed closer relations with China and with Russia. To what extent, Janice, are those players, because we know we're in this moment of geopolitical kind of fracturing, what does Russia and China do? Surely this this event benefits Russia vis-a-vis the war in Ukraine. Well, I can tell you that Vladimir Putin 
uh, is not unhappy uh, today in the Kremlin. One is going to distract American policymakers. Uh, two, uh, there are going to be demands that Israel will make for ammunition, for medical supplies that might otherwise have gone to Ukraine uh, that will now go to Israel uh, for the foreseeable future because Israel's all given the scope of the casualties. Believe it or not, they are already running low on some of the emergency medical supplies and they will run low uh, on ammunition. There are prepositioned stocks in Israel, some of which have been going to Ukraine. That will stop now. Uh, so if, from a purely tactical perspective, Putin is happy. He's also happy from a strategic perspective. It takes everybody's eyes off what he's doing uh, and focuses everybody's eyes and attention on the Middle East. China, I think, will be more reserved. Um, China is a much more careful player than Putin is. But China, Janice, is not correct is purchasing large quantities of Iranian oil that the Americans up to this point have looked the other way on because high energy prices have been a big part of the cause of inflation uh, in the West. And they've chosen to allow Iran and China to benefit from a large trading relationship. Does Are those kinds of cards now going to be put down on the table, Janice? Do you think the United States and others will be forced uh, or choose to be much more clear about who's on our side and who isn't and start to act accordingly. You know, I don't, Rudyard, and I'll tell you why I don't. Um, you know how you better than anyone know how important the price of oil is as a driver of inflation. The biggest single liability that Biden has as he approaches the presidential campaign, the best uh, explainer of his low standing in the polls is the long struggle Americans are having with inflation. Uh, I cannot imagine that they would want to drive those inflation numbers up no matter the reason they've looked the other way. Uh, on that trade in oil. And I think they will continue to look the other way on that trade in oil. The other side of this story is China buys a lot of technology from Israel. So it's diversified in its relationships with the Middle East. It has a good relationship with Saudi Arabia, as you know, as well as with Iran. That's one of the reasons that the United States moved to negotiate this deal with Saudi Arabia, is to pull Saudi Arabia back from its blossoming friendship with China. So my sense here is that China will be very careful, right? You're given all the, 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 the multiple friends it has in the region. It will be very careful, unlike Russia. Final question, Saudi Arabia, key player here. We know going into this weekend's horrible events that there was seemingly uh, a deal almost to be had between Israel and Saudi to begin to normalize relations. Would have completely uh, restructured a lot of the Middle East and the power dynamics in the region. What happens with Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia is no fan of Hamas. This is uh, a branch of Islam that uh, is antithetical to the kingdom. Could Saudi Arabia emerge here, Janice, as 
a moderating force that tries to, with the Qataris and others in the Gulf, tries to exert a kind of positive influence, both not only over Hamas, but over continuing some real pressure on with Israel precisely to ensure that there is some new future, some new direction for Gaza. Because surely, Janice, it's in no one's interest that Gaza remain this constant reoccurring hand grenade that seems to blow up every 10 to 15 years. So that's the most optimistic scenario, frankly. Um, There's not a lot of time. That's the trouble, Roger, to execute on it. Um, Right now, I think Mohammed bin Salman would be the most effective mediator who could reach out to Tel Aviv, to Egypt, which is the traditional mediator. Uh, The issue would be, I think, frankly, all those three governments would want to see Hamas gone now. And how you execute on that strategy without sending in ground forces is not obvious. You have to have a longer view and use unconventional objectives. All of this will be possible if there are not large numbers of casualties in Gaza as a result of an Israeli ground incursion. That's why what happens in the next 48 to 72 hours is so critical, Roger. Janice, as always, amazing insights. This is not an easy weekend for everyone, but especially for members of the Jewish community. There are so many older traumas, to say the least, that these types of horrible events resurface. So I know in talking to Jewish friends, difficult moment in this Thanksgiving, you know, our thoughts are with the people of Israel. Uh, They are with our fellow members of the Jewish community who are reliving in some cases, uh, the horrors of history, horrors of history that unfortunately are being written once again today. Janice Stein, thank you so much for coming on Hub Dialogues. Thank you, Rutgerd, for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>